Those of you who have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along in your order of worship, or you can use your phone or any other device that you have. I'm going to read from verse 13 through 21. So I say to you, hear the word of God. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we consider this um, command with regard to murder, that you would um, both convict us of our sin, but I pray that you would also convict us of grace and mercy, that in the context of of this particular command, it may be even easier to see uh, what Jesus has done for us. And so I pray you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I also pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Well, the reason I read the whole, the, the rest of the law there is basically to give it a little bit of context because we're getting into commands that seem pretty stark on the face of it, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery. And if you remember, the whole reason that God gave Israel the Ten Commandments was because he had a mission for them that he had delivered them from Egypt, and then he called them to be a light to the nations around them. And if they would have asked, well, how are we supposed to do that? The answer is the Ten Commandments. In other words, he gave them his law in order to preserve them and to equip them as they sought to be a light to the nations. On one hand, it seemed pretty common sense. If you go murdering the nations around you, it's probably not going to go very well as far as a good witness. On the other hand, it's important to keep in mind because we tend to just look at the law as sort of this, this objective thing that, that is sort of you either keep it or you don't keep it. And we're going to see this morning, it actually, the tentacles of the law go everywhere. We've seen that throughout, but especially this morning, I believe. Before we begin, I'm going to ask you a question. And I'm going to ask you a question after this. All the commands, the, the rest of the ones that we have now, they're actually extremely short. So the, the commandment, uh, you shall not murder, in Hebrew, is only six letters long, right? It's, it's the prefix lo, and then chratzach, right, four letters, and it just says no murder in Hebrew. And so the same with the rest of them. So let me ask you this question. As you read the commandments above you, the, the ones that follow, which of them is easiest to obey of the ones that I've listed for you? Need some time to think about it. If, if you're like most people, this question has actually been asked by sociologists and, and theologians. If you're like most people, most people say the easiest one of these to obey is the first one here, no murder. And I'm assuming after last service, a lot of people said, yep, that's what I said. And the reason, it, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, because we can all look at these and say, you know, have you ever stolen anything? 
you know, it's like as a kid, I remember when I was a kid, I got caught stealing. I took some gum off of a shelf, you know, at a Shakey's uh, fried chicken place, and my dad busted me. It was, it was a horrible experience. But I stole something, I got caught, right? I was like, you're gonna, okay, yes, so I've stolen. Have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, everyone has sort of fudged the truth. We can all identify with those. But when you say, have you ever killed anyone, what do most people say? Well, I never murdered anybody. Now, the irony is, is, is that the fact that the command that most people think they are the most innocent of and that it's the easiest to obey is the one of which we are usually the most guilty. In other words, if you think that murder is the easiest one for you to keep, we need to talk. In fact, we're going to talk, at least one of us is, for about the next 25 minutes or so. Uh, you see, because when you think about murder, we tend to think only of sort of the physical manifestation of murder. And even, even then, we think, well, I've never killed anybody. Have you thought about it? You know, I found a great and interesting, uh, great is the right word, but interesting article by David Brooks from 2012 in the New York Times colonist. And it was after 16 uh, Afghan citizens had been murdered by soldiers, frankly. And people were grappling with, you know, why would people do that? And we, you hear it sort of oftentimes when, when a shooting happens, you know, what possessed someone to do that? And Brooks basically says, we shouldn't be surprised at this. And he says, um, even people, this is from his article, even people who contain reservoirs of compassion and neighborliness also possess a latent potential to commit murder. And then he cites a study, David Buss, of the University of Texas asked his students if they'd ever thought seriously about killing someone, and if so, to write out their homicidal fantasies in an essay. He was astonished to find that 91% of men and 84% of the women had detailed, vivid homicidal fantasies. <laughs> he was even more astonished to learn how many steps some of his students had taken toward carrying them out. They're just average college kids who will kill you. In other words, there's something about murder that on one hand, every culture in the world at some level says it's wrong. And we all sort of think, well, that's not us. And on the other hand, it's sort of in us and it's sort of part of who we are. Remember my favorite Tim Keller quote of, you know, he has thousands of them, is when he, I've heard him say before that you're not uh, Stalin or Hitler, but it's not for lack of talent. Think about that, right? We tend to look at people like that and say, oh, those word murders are horrible people. You and I have that in us. By the end of today's sermon, I think you're going to see that. We're going to look at three things today as we consider this command about murder. And basically, we're going to look at, we're going to look at this command not to murder through the lens of cups, through the lens of coins, and through the lens of Christ. And I'll explain those if you weren't here when we went through those before. I'll explain them as we go along. And so let's first look at the sixth commandment through the lens of cups. Now remember what the principle of cups says is just this, is that the, when Jesus talked to the Pharisees and they were basically putting on the show of righteousness, he said on the outside, the cup is clean. He's talking about them. He said on the inside, however, you're full of greed and wickedness. What the principle of cups says is that whenever you try to apply one of the Ten Commandments, that there's an external way to apply that Ten Commandment. It's usually external and obvious. And then there's also an internal and oftentimes less obvious way to apply the commandment. In other words, the, the, the inside of the cup is expected to be as clean as the outside and vice versa. So when I say cups, that's what I mean. And so when you consider this command, you shall not murder, what is the external manifestation of this command? 
Well, it basically comes in two, two aspects. The first thing that this command refers to literally is premeditated murder. There are lots of command, there, there are lots of words for kill in the Old Testament. This is not one of them. In other words, this word applies specifically to premeditated murder. And there are parts of the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament, where uh, killing another person is actually uh, mandated for a capital crime, or it's mandated in the case of some kind of war. But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is normally used for premeditated murder, neighbor against neighbor. You get angry at someone and you strike them down. That's typically what it means. So for example, what would premeditated murder look like? So imagine you, know, you have a neighbor and his name is Wilson and every morning at 5 a.m. his dog just starts yapping like crazy. I mean, you could set your alarm clock by this thing, which you assume Wilson probably has his alarm clock set, and when he wakes up, that's a dog signal to just go crazy. And since you sleep with your windows open normally in the Pacific Northwest, you can hear that thing, and you go and try and talk to Wilson. And Wilson says, I don't care what you think about my dog. My dog can do whatever he wants. And you try and talk to him, and you try and talk to him, and you try and talk to him. And finally, you say, I'm going to take care of this. And so one night while Wilson's asleep, you daisy chain claymore mines around his whole house and you reel the stuff all the way to your house and you attach the clicker and you're laying in bed and in the next morning at 5 a.m., as soon as the dog yaps one time, kaboom, silence until you hear the police cars coming. That's premeditated murder. You took care of the problem by getting rid of the problem. There's another interesting thing, that this word not only applies to, to premeditated murder, but it also applies to manslaughter. Right? Manslaughter is when someone accidentally dies, but it's because of your negligence or your fault. So, for example, you're driving home one day from, from work, and you actually like Wilson. He's a decent guy. You, you don't like the dog barking in the morning. And as soon as you turn on your street, Wilson happens to be walking his dog, and your wife texts you and says, you, don't forget to bring home milk. And so, of course, you're the only person in the world who looks down at your phone at that time. And you say that you start texting your wife back, okay, do you need anything else? And before you can write the word anything else, you feel kabum-pump. And Wilson and his poor little pooch are now dead. That's manslaughter. You didn't intend to do it, but you're still responsible for it. There's a sense in which, you know, John Frame is a theologian. He talks about this. He says, there's the, it's almost like there's a law of carefulness built in here that we ought to be careful with the way we do things so that other people aren't harmed. So it's premeditated murder, but it's also harming people because you just weren't careful enough to not harm them. And then there's a third way, and here's where, where it starts to get more interesting and there starts to be more application. You see, the, the, the premeditated murder is one thing, and then, of course, manslaughter is another thing. But there is a version of premeditated murder and manslaughter that's less obvious. And it would look something like this. So Wilson has his dog. Every morning at 5 a.m. it starts yapping. You try and talk to Wilson, and Wilson says, I'm not going to do anything about my dog. So the way you now kill Wilson is you start going to the other neighbors, and you say, what about that guy? What do you think about that dog? He's not a very good guy, is he? Let me Think about this. I bet he's not even a good American. I mean, did you see the day after the 4th of July, he took his flag down? Everyone keeps it up for the rest of the month. You, in other words, you start gossiping about Wilson. And you start trying, if you can't murder him physically because you know you'll go to jail, we oftentimes tend to murder people with our mouths. In other words, murder kills, but, but gossip also kills. Slander kills. 
And I've often, I've heard every now and then that someone would say, well, if it's, if it's, if it's true, it's not gossip if you say something about someone. That's the problem with the law. The law is all about the intent. So whether you're saying something true about someone or whether you're saying something false about someone, if your intent is not to bless them with it, it's murder. That gets pretty rough, would you not? I don't know about you guys, so now if I ask you the question, again, which one of these commands is easiest for you to obey? I'm guessing a lot of people wouldn't gravitate toward murder as quickly. Why do we murder? Why do, why do we do this? Remember James chapter 4 says, you do that because you don't get what you want. If you think all the way back to Cain and Abel, that's exactly the kind of thing that happened. It, uh, Cain didn't get the affirmation from God that he wanted, and so he killed the guy who was in the way, at least what he thought, of getting his affirmation. If we don't get what we want, we tend to try and take the person out. And so when you think about this, one of the questions is, why is murder so bad? I mean, just generally, general revelation-wise, murder is bad across cultures. No one sort of affirms premeditated murder or manslaughter. Why is it so bad? And the answer is actually pretty simple. It's because human life is sacred. Humanity plays a, a role in creation that no other thing plays. That, remember we've talked before about in the gar when kings in the ancient Near East, when they'd take over a land, maybe they'd take over a country or they'd take over some area, they would put images of themselves throughout the land so that when people came through, they would say, wow, that must belong to this guy because his image is all over the place. Well, when God created, he made all of creation, and there's a sense in which all creation glorifies God, but he actually also made his image, and he said his image would fill the earth, and his image would proclaim his glory and his praise and his mercy all the time. So when, when you murder somebody, when we murder somebody, what you're doing is you are actually taking away a poten either a potential or real uh, person who would be giving God praise and glory. In other words, they're just not there anymore if they're murdered. That makes sense? And so you think it'd be like going through the king's garden where he has placed his image to, to show people who owns the place, and you just start defacing the image and getting rid of them and crushing them. So the reason that God is so uptight about murder is because murder actually defaces his image, and his image are the ones who proclaim his glory. So every person who is murdered is a person who is no longer proclaiming his glory. Is a person, and whether they are murdered physically or if they are murdered just rep, by way of reputation, their witness to his glory is not as strong. Now, I don't have time to talk about everything, about war and everything else, but I do think it's, it, it's appropriate to to take a side road for just a minute and talk about the issue of abortion. Right? There's, a, there's an, a, no question that the law of the land in the United States is that it is legal for a woman to have an abortion. Now here's the issue. Because it is legal, that does not necessarily mean it is moral. You see, because every child that is not born is a child that is now potentially not able to sing the praise and glory of God. And when you start thinking about it globally, you can actually see why God is so tight with murder. Uh, globally speaking, since in the 1970s, uh, and I, I found this in a book called Unnatural Selection, by the way, um, about 163 million female babies have been aborted since the mid-70s. That is a lot of praise and glory that God is not getting. And it's going to cause trouble down the road. You know, sociologists say all of these kinds of things. Now, the, the question is, what do you do about that if you're a church? And the answer is, I think, in the next command, or the next aspect of the command. 
You see, because on one hand, uh, the, we oftentimes, I think that the church doesn't have much of a voice when it comes to issues like abortion or gun violence, for that matter, or any other kind of thing. Because too often, uh, people look at us and they see people who are actually violators of the Sixth Commandment rather than keepers of the Sixth Commandment. In other words, what comes out of our mouth tells people a lot about what we think of them. And so you have to ask yourself, if you were a woman or girl who was in trouble and hurting and scared, she made one decision that was going to affect the rest of her life, is church the place she would go to find compassion and grace? Unfortunately, whether it's because of media spin or because of it's the truth, that's not the case. So the extent to which we can actually begin to, to live out and flesh out the sixth commandment is the extent to which I think we'll have much more voice in this issue and any other issue. And so how do you do that? Well, you, when you think through the, the I'm going to skip that passage. That's the passage where Jesus says, if you've even said to your brother, fool, you're guilty of murder. Because basically, when you get to start thinking about how do we live out the commandment, you could be, you could be just negative and say, as long as I don't kill anybody, as long as I don't say anything. But if, even if you do that, you've not necessarily obeyed the commandment. So what do I mean by that? And that brings us to the principle of coins. Remember I told you each of the Ten Commandments is like a coin, and it has a negative side and a positive side, and basically when you interpret them, it you ask yourself this, if something is forbidden, the opposite is required. Or if something is required, the opposite is forbidden. And so we've talked about a lot of them. If, you know, if, if stealing is forbidden, then the opposite is required, which would be generosity, right? If, if adultery is forbidden, the opposite is required, which would be faithfulness. And so if murder is forbidden, what is the opposite of murder? It's not as easy to answer, is it? The opposite of, of murder is actually giving life. It's, 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 it's giving life, it's protecting life, it's defending life. It, it, it's, it's doing good in some sense. And maybe the best illustration of the outworking of the Ten Commandments that Jesus used, or the outworking of the Sixth Commandment, is what we find in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let, me, let me just read that to you. In Luke chapter 10. So it says in that and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, remember, there's two tables of the law. The first four commandments talk about our duty toward God, and the second half talk about our duty toward our neighbor. And this lawyer so far has gotten it, right? Okay, part one, love God. Part two, love na your neighbor. And Jesus affirms that. 28, he says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went out to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set on him his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
So in that parable, you see two people who are completely and utterly violating the sixth commandment. They happen to be clergy, right? A priest would be basically the equivalent, our equivalent of a pastor, and a Levite would be like an assistant pastor. They assisted the priest. So the pastor walks down the street, and he sees a man beaten and bloody on the other side of the street, and whether he doesn't want to become unclean or whether he doesn't want to be inconvenienced, he just walks right past him. He's just broken the sixth commandment the positive outworking of the sixth commandment. The Levite, same thing. We don't know why he went on the other side of the street, whether he was just didn't want to be inconvenienced or what, but either way, he broke the sixth commandment. A Samaritan who were universally hated by Jews, he comes, he sees the man, and he actually proactively goes and helps him. He proactively goes and takes care of him. He proactively t- goes and nurses him to health. And in doing so, he has obeyed the sixth commandment. You see, the sixth commandment, the negative part, is do not murder. The positive part is to do good. That ultimately, remember, Jesus was the the one who came to us when we were down and out, when we were beaten down, and he does good to us. You see, on one hand, it's our responsibility to to do good if we are going to obey this command. On the other hand, we're not very good. That's the problem. And so where does that leave us? Well, we need someone who could obey this, who could not only obey it, but who could, could expunge our record, if you will, get us a new record, and then change our hearts so that we could go from being murderers to actually being defenders, that we could go from murderers to, go to being people who actually were literally pro-life. When we think of pro-life, we tend to think only of the issue of abortion. But pro-life, at least in terms of biblical standards, is pro-life in the sense of everything. It's pro-life with regard to the way you treat your neighbor. It's pro-life with the way that we treat the homeless and the outcast. It's pro-life with the way we treat the the single mother whose kids need tutoring. In other words, there's no end to the application of this command, and it shouldn't surprise you, because every one of them seems to be like this. So where where, where does Jesus come in to all this? Well, what I love about when you think about the gospel in Acts chapter 10, it's interesting because... Peter has been called to a Gentile's house, and the way that he summarizes the gospel, in many ways, d- depending on what kind of church you were in, he would almost, you could almost hear people accusing him of being a liberal, right, for those of you who are conservative. I don't, conservatives don't, aren't usually uh, accused of being do-gooders, but, so you can almost hear this, and, but I think it's interesting and it's challenging for the way that Peter describes the ministry of Jesus. So when the, Cornelius calls him and says, basically, what is the gospel? Here's what Peter says to him. He says, as for the, in verse 36 of chapter 10 in the Acts, he says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That isn't what you, you expect something bigger than that, right? I, at least I would. Peter is called, this is the first time Gentiles are hearing the gospel. What does he tell them about Jesus? Is that he was obedient to the sixth commandment, among other things. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed. You know, when I was in seminary, there was an older professor. He was like one of the smartest guys I've ever met. When he went, he worked at Princeton and Einstein was his next door neighbor. And he would always walk around with this cup that said, uh, practice random acts of kindness. And I would give him the hardest time about that cup. I'd say, come on, yeah, get out of here with that cup. 
You know, I, I used to think he was crazy, and you know what? Now I think I'm probably the one who didn't get it. At least when you look at Jesus, Jesus went around doing good. He went around not only not murdering people, but he went around doing good and healing people and healing all who were oppressed. And if you look at the, the other Gospels, right, healing of people of all their diseases and ministering to them. That's what it looks like to obey the sixth commandment. But it even gets bigger than that because Peter says that half of the gospel is that Jesus lived the sixth commandment where you and I didn't. In other words, he lived the life that we should have lived in obedience to the sixth commandment. But the next part, Peter says, and we were witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. In other words, Jesus not only accomplishes our forgiveness and accomplishes our righteousness, accomplishes our redemption because he went around doing good. In other words, he didn't just give us an example of doing good. He did good because we are incapable of it, ultimately. Completely obeyed the the sixth commandment, but then he allowed himself to be murdered. That's pretty wild if you think about it. That one of the ways that Jesus did good for us is by allowing other people to break the sixth commandment. In other words, he obeyed the Sixth Commandment in the context of them breaking the Sixth Commandment so that we might become innocent of the Sixth Commandment. It's pretty wild. Because if you think about when Jesus was crucified, it says in Luke chapter 23, he was hung between two thieves on the cross. And as they were mocking him, he looked looked up and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the context of being murdered, Jesus is still pleading forgiveness for murderers. So my guess is if you've been, you know, at least if first service was any measure, people walked out feeling pretty guilty. And that's not how I want you to walk out of here. You need to walk out of here today actually feeling pretty free because Jesus has borne your murderousness on the cross. He has borne your sins on the cross, no matter what they are. And if you would only put your trust in him, that is the key to actually being able to obey the commands from that point on. You know, when I went to, to last week, there was a, I don't know if, if the story was told, but last Thursday night, I got a call from my best friend in Baltimore, and he said, hey, where are you? Why aren't you at the airport? I was sitting two blocks from here at the time, and I said, what do you mean? He said, for the retreat. I said, the retreat's next weekend. He said, oh, no, it's this weekend. Oops. So I missed my flight. The next day, I got on an airplane, and, and you know, it was crazy to even get a flight that late. And uh, Bethany from Southwest was very helpful to me. And I sat on the plane, and as soon as I sat on the plane, I pulled out all of this work on the murder sermon, like ethics and, you know, this kind of stuff. And I pulled it out, and it, was, it made me laugh because the kid sitting next to me, he was a kid, I mean, a teenager, he pulled out his computer and opened it up and booted up some, a game called Just Cause. And so when I was like studying and reading about ethics of murder, this kid was just blowing people to smithereens. I mean, every person, they pop up on the screen, boom, and they would just disappear in a puff of red mist, right? And I just couldn't help but think about how oftentimes we think if we could just, if kids just didn't look at those games, you know, we probably wouldn't have school shootings. Or if, or, if, or if we do this or that or the other thing. And here's the thing. that but If you could get rid of all the games in the world, murder would still be in our heart. You can, you can impose all the legislation, all the laws in the world. I'm not totally against that stuff. 
But at the end of the day, if you want to ever see anything change, it has to be a change that happens in our hearts, not outside of us. What matters is what's inside. And Jesus is willing to change that if you just let him. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning as we consider this whole issue of, of murder, um, you know, how often are we guilty of this particular sin? And, and we think we're not. And we're, we're guilty uh, because we don't do good, and we're guilty because we do bad. And I just pray that you would use these times and use our conscience to draw us to the cross of Jesus to see that he has forgiven our sin and will forgive our sin. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.